been fun to journey with him, and, and that's been my prayer, is that you and I would journey with him. And uh, if you're like me, you continue to learn a lot about this man's life and how God led him. And uh, as we've learned already, clearly not a perfect man. And uh, he made a lot of mistakes in his journey, and that I can relate to, and maybe you as well. And so if you turn to Genesis 16, as you turn there, though, um, I, I thought it would be important to address something. Um, there are elections coming up. And I've so appreciated those who are already bathing them in prayer. I appreciate Becky and Keith Swenson in their heart uh, as they've sought God with a group of people specifically for months uh, over what awaits us here a little over a week. You may have questions like I do, is what should I do? Who should I vote for? It's frustrating, if we were honest, as we look at some of the races, at least the presidential race. Um, is frustrating, I'm sure. But first of all, I want to say, realize there's more than one election. <laughs> um, there are a lot of important uh, seats up for grabs and positions in our government, dis- different levels of government. They'll be on the ballot uh, as you go to vote. And um, really, elections are won and lost when God casts his vote. Because that's the only vote that really matters, is his vote. So I need to tell you and remind you, first of all, he's in charge. Don't forget that uh, as you and I go about this. The question that I ask myself is, how does God cast his vote? Well, he casts his vote through his people's votes. You need to vote. You and I need to get out there. And I know you're frustrated, and I know part of us, there's part of me that says, I don't know who I'm going to vote for. I'm not happy with any of my options in some cases, and, um, but I want you to seek God. I want you to vote on his principles and his values. And if you and I seek him, if we can set aside all political allegiances and all that stuff and just get on our knees and seek him. Colossians says you and I can let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. That word rule means govern, it means umpire, it means make the decision. If you and I will seek him. Because we need to remember that God doesn't come riding in the back of an elephant or a donkey. He has an agenda all his own. And that's the agenda we need to tap into. And so let's seek him. Let's be a people who seek him. And as we go, we go with the assurance and confidence, and I believe God will lead us clearly, for you to vote. And it's your vote, but you need to get out there. We all need to get out there and vote. I know... Through the scriptures teach us that over history, God's used pretty messed up leaders. And he still can. And I believe he still will throughout the world. And so I just want to encourage you to do that. Remind you he's in charge. Trust him and make sure you follow through on uh, what is an important step for you and for every Christian, that is to vote. One of the, this passage, this story is going to go through is, is kind of like that. Um, And what does it mean to wait upon the Lord, as we sang about? And as we catch up on Abraham and and his journey so far, remember God rescued him. He was one time a a cult worship. He worshiped in a cult. He came from the land of Ur. God said, listen, here's what I want you to do. I want you to leave everything that's comfortable to you. I want you to leave your occupation. I want you to leave your family. I want you to leave your community. I want you to leave all of it. Pack up your family, your wife, and leave. And he did, amazingly. And God promised him 
that his descendants would be numerous. And God promised him all the nations on earth would be blessed through him. Abraham had one job, was to follow God. To seek him and to follow him. That, that was his job. It was really quite simple. Well, it was simple in instruction, a little harder to carry out. Why do I say that? Because Jesus left you and I as disciples really one commandment. Follow him. It's pretty easy how we mess it up, isn't it? <laughs> pretty easy how we can make something so simple, follow him, really, really complicated. Because the reality is all of us face dilemmas. And as believers, we often face spiritual ones. And sometimes it's occupational. The dilemma would be, you know what, I, I have an opportunity here and I have an opportunity here. Which job should I take? Sometimes it's academic. I think I could go into this field, although this one might take a couple more years of college, but I also have this opportunity to go into this field. This one might cost more, and, and so what do I do academically? Romantically. I want to get married, and, and I see a person I kind of like, and, and, but I'm not sure they're a Christian. And I see somebody over here who's a Christian, and I'm not sure they're going to have a high-paying job. They're kind of going into an area that doesn't pay a lot. And, and so we really start to wonder, is this a relationship I should pursue? What about this one? It creates a dilemma sometimes. Financially, we all face those. What should I put my money towards? I put it towards cars that keep breaking down or newer ones. You've been there? Uh, um, um, what, what should be a standard of living that's proper for me as a Christian? We face dilemmas of all kinds. Do we keep waiting for God in this situation? Or, or how much do we help God out? I mean, when should I pull the trigger on some of these decisions? And when should I start walking that way or walking that way? When do I do that? We can ask those questions, or we could adopt the old adage of the age, God helps those who help themselves. Or, to put it another way, it's this idea of, why don't, why don't I just jump in? You see, because I'm kind of clever. You're kind of smart. You've been around the block. It's not your first rodeo. You could probably make a great decision, because you know how to solve the solutions. And when we think that way, before long, we're running ahead of God. Because we think in our cleverness and our ability to make decisions that maybe we'd make a better one than God. Or at the very least, he's not leading me quick enough. I better help him out. Well, this is, if that's you, you're going to relate to this journey of Abraham and Sarah. This couple had waited for years for God's promise to come to fruition. A promise that Abram, Abram would have a baby from his own DNA. And this couple waited for years, and it wasn't happening. This predicament, I'm sure, became increasingly embarrassment for Sarah especially, and Abram. And I'm sure they probably, could you imagine Sarah going to the grocery store? People have probably heard this promise, I'm sure they did. And they knew what God had promised Abram, and there's Sarah, and shopping, and all of a sudden people say, are you pregnant yet? Any word? Can you imagine how frustrating that would be? And after a while, you, it would be like, oh, just be quiet. As a matter of fact, it would be, I don't even want to go out into the market. Because someone's going to ask me, and I'm going to get frustrated, 
And so this, any news question grew even more tense. Genesis 16 begins with a dilemma. Follow along the first six verses. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. So Sarah said to Abram, Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children through her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. And after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Abram's wife Sarai took Hagar the Egyptian, her maid, and gave her to her husband Abram as his wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her sight. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done be me be upon you. I gave my maid into your arms. But when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her sight. May the Lord judge between me and you. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your maid is in your power. Do to her what is good in your sight. So Sarai treated her harshly, and she fled from her presence. Now, people may be surprised to learn that surrogate mothers aren't a modern-day invention. You see, in the ancient world, the problem of inheritance for a wealthy man with an heir was serious. And it caused all kinds of conflicts. You see, ensuring an orderly, peaceful transfer of property from one generation to another was a high priority of people. Remember I said before, there were three signs really that people conceived of as great blessing. One of them was land and this inheritance. And so if a man didn't have an heir, there was this idea back then, it was a custom of an idea of a surrogate who would carry an heir to a, to a man's inheritance. For those in this situation like Abram, surrogacy was not only legal, it was socially acceptable, it was culturally, in some cases, even an expected option. The custom allowed a barren wife like Sarai to employ a substitute to bear an heir if she was unable to do so. Provisions and protections were spelled out in ancient Mesopotamia legal codes that people have found. Custom also dictated that if a surrogate mother gave birth to a son, neither the surrogate mother nor the son could be forced to leave. So in a sense, there was protection afforded any surrogate mom. And although there was nothing socially, culturally, or really legally improper with Abram's fathering of Ishmael by a surrogate, the patriarch, patriarch still acted contrary to God's will. You see, what's culturally, here's a good lesson we need to learn, What's culturally and socially acceptable isn't always right. And it was certainly true in this case. Sarah's tired of waiting. NIV study Bible, it says what took place was simply an ancient custom that was not unusual. This pressure to produce a child became strong. So what did she do? She devised this plan. She devised a, a, a plan to escape this predicament. Now the first question I ask as I read these first six verses is, why would Abram even listen to this plan? I mean, why would he agree to this type of solution? It's a legit question. I mean, Sarah thought of it. She goes to him. Abram kind of like, okay. And there's some reasons. One, I think, is Abram isn't getting any younger either. He's getting older. Another reason Abram could have gone along with it is God didn't seem to be moving too fast here. He seemed to be 
taking his time. You know what that's like, parents, don't you? You ask your child to do something, and it's like, let's pick up the pace here. We'd like it done in this decade, please. Okay? And, and you're like, hurry up. Let's, let's move it along. And I, Abram, I'm sure, thought like that. If we were honest, we think the same way in our faith journey. It was interesting. I looked back, and up to this point, I don't read anywhere, and I could be wrong, but I couldn't find it, where God specified that Sarah would be the mom at this point. The only promise was Abraham would father out of his own DNA an heir. I didn't read anything up to this point that Sarah was mentioned. It was assumed, I think. And so maybe in Abram's mind, he's thinking, well, he never really mentioned Sarah being the mom. Maybe, maybe it's somebody else. We don't know, but might have thought that. Again, this was a common custom practice. So in Abram's mind, he's looking around thinking, okay, everyone else is doing it. Never thought that. Also, it was Sarah's idea. If she's okay, well, okay. I don't think Abram would have ever thought of this option, to be honest. Sarah thought of it. And Abram, well, he agreed. Because as a husband, who wouldn't want your wife happy? Who wouldn't want their wife happy by giving her a child? And I'm sure Abram, day in and day out, when he came home, he would saw Sarah. He saw the, the grief. He saw the pain, the confusion. I'm sure he saw it. Maybe if he's heard of this plan, he went, well, let's go for it. Let's see what happens. Verse 3 is interesting when we compare it with another passage, a verse in, the, in the, this chapter. After Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Abram's wife Sarah took Hagar the Egyptian, her maid, gave her to her husband Abram, and now notice these last three words, as his wife. Go to verse 9. We're going to read this in a minute. The angel of the Lord said to her, Hagar, Return to your mistress and submit yourself to her authority. In other words, go back to Sarah, your mistress, not Abram, your husband. That's an important distinction. Sarah gave Hagar to Abram as his wife. That was her plan. Verse 9 is God's plan. No, Hagar's not Abram's wife. Abram is Sarah's mistress. You see, there's a difference. There's one plan, a human plan. The other's a divine plan. The angel of the Lord says, no, 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 no. Go back to Sarah, your mistress. She's not Abram's wife. That was not his plan. If you don't believe me, we can read in Galatians 4. This is going to be your next step throughout this week. But I want to read it because it gives such a great connection. I'm going to read out of the NIV. And here's what Galatians 4, 21 through 31 says. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abram had two sons, one by the slave woman, this would be Hagar, and the other by the free woman, that would be Sarah. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, but his son by the free woman was born as a result of a divine promise. These things are to be taken figuratively. The women represent two covenants. One covenant is Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves, that is Hagar. Now, Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free, the spiritual Jerusalem. And she is our mother, for it is written, Be glad, barren woman, you who never bore a child. Shout for joy and cry aloud, you who are never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than her who has a husband. 
Now you, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. At that time, the son born according to the flesh persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit. It is the same now. But what does Scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance of the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. And if I could really, really simplify this in really simplistic terms, the son born of the flesh is man's plan. The the son born of the promise, that was God's plan. And whenever you see flesh, especially here in Galatians 4, we need to think in terms of what it says. It's an illegitimate means to accomplish a promise. That's the flesh. Of the flesh is an illegitimate means to accomplish a promise. In other words, Sarah and Abram acted according to the flesh, according to man's plan. It was not God's plan. God's plan was a son born of the free woman, born of a promise. That's God's plan. Hagar, the bondwoman, was a maid, a servant, her son, a born, born according to the flesh. Again, man's efforts, man's idea, but Sarah, the free woman, her son was born of a promise. God's plan, God's power. Sarah went outside of God in his plan to try to help God. She acted sinfully, hoping to bring the promise about. And when God gives a promise, he doesn't want you and I to go to the flesh to find answer and to find fulfillment. In Genesis 16, 2 through 3, they have a fleshly solution, a sinful solution to a perceived dilemma. God calls Abram and Sarah to walk by faith, not by sight. Guess what? He calls you to do the same thing. To walk by faith is to walk according to the promise. To walk by sight is to walk according to the flesh. Does it make sense what's going on here? It's a totally different calling of what God has. They act contrary to flesh, just like Galatians 4 told us. You see, faith is living without scheming. You say, how do I know if I'm walking by faith? One, you're willing to wait. If you're not willing to wait, you're probably living according to the flesh. Walking according to the Spirit, you're willing to wait. If you walk according... Uh, walking by faith, you're concerned for the glory of God. When you walk by faith, you obey God's word. When you walk by faith, there's peace and there's joy within. In Abram and Sarah's account, they failed on all of them. They did not walk on faith. And we see an absence of peace and joy. We see disobedience. We see they're not concerned for the glory of God in this case. And they weren't willing to wait. They failed on all accounts of what it means to walk by faith. Those in dilemmas often seek fleshly solutions. You see, there's another dilemma created by their fleshly solution. In other words, there's consequences, fleshly consequences, because they wanted a fleshly solution. Hagar's pregnant. And immediately she begins to despise Sarah. The Hebrew word despise in this case means kind of like taunt. Kind of like if you have an athlete who, who, who scored or dunked on someone, they kind of stand over them and taunt them. Like, look what I did. And that's kind of the idea of what Hagar's doing. So I'm pregnant. You're not. And she kept at it. And it persisted. And it was a consequence of a fleshly solution they carried out. And the very act that brought this child into existence now drives a wedge between Sarah and Hagar. As a matter of fact, during the months of pregnancy... Every relationship begins to unravel. Think about it. 
Hagar despises Sarah. Sarah mistreats Hagar. Sarah blames Abram. Abram, well, he just throws in the towel. Every relationship begins to unravel, not surprisingly. When we try to do it our own way and go our own way, bad things happen, as it did here. Abram's caught in the middle of two angry, jealous women, and the results are of the flesh because the solution was of the flesh. And the principle here is you and I don't gain spiritual growth, spiritual fruit by fleshly solutions. Don't think you can grow in your relationship with God if you're going to do it your own way. Whatever the, the case would be, financially, relationally, whatever it would be, we don't grow spiritually by carrying out fleshly solutions. Now, before we move on, I ask a simple question. Who's wrong here? As we read through this, we could launch our wagon to various people throughout this account. Sarah's scheme, bad idea. Abram, wrong for going along with it. Both are wrong for not trusting God. Hagar's wrong for despising Sarah. Sarah for mistreating Hagar. Abram's trying to wash his hands of the all thing, of the whole thing. Hagar probably for running away. But as I thought of who's at fault, I couldn't help but camp on Abram for this reason. He was the head of the family, A. B, God had spoken to him directly. The promise was communicated to Abram directly. I, I think that's important. And no one made him sleep with Hagar. He was passive in this thing as man's solution was carried out. And there's a lot of guilt going around in this account for sure. But the story also contains a divine intervention. Verses 7 through 16. I'm going to have to hurry through this a little bit more, so forgive me. Verse 7 says, Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. By the way, that's a fairly far distance from where Hagar is when she becomes pregnant. That's important, I think. Verse 8. And he said, Hagar, Sarah's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I'm fleeing from the presence of my mistress Sarai. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit yourself to her authority. Moreover, the angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your descendants so that they shall be too many to count. The angel of the Lord said to her further, Behold, you are with child. You shall bear a son and you shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has given heed to your affliction. And he will be a wild donkey of a man and his hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand will be against him and he will live to the east of his brothers. Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, Thou art a God who sees. For she said, Have I even remained alive here with seeing him? Therefore the well was called Birleh Behold, it is between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. And Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. As I read verse 7, I couldn't help but remember, God seems in the habit of meeting desolate people at a well. Go back to John 4. It was interesting to me how God in his grace and mercy met this woman at this well. There, it seems that she has come a long way distance-wise where she was. The reason I think that's important is how come nobody noticed she was gone? If she'd come probably days of a journey... We don't read anywhere that Sarah, Abram, or anybody else noticed that she was even gone. In other words, I think this is not only a woman who's been mistreated, but has been forgotten. And as she comes along, and she comes to a well, and she's met by a divine visitor. She has a divine encounter. 
Verse 9, 10, and 11 identify as an angel of the Lord, an angel of Yahweh. But it's interesting, verse 13, this angel of Yahweh is referred to, then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. So people call it, theologians call us a theophany. In other words, a visible manifestation of God. This, this, this divine visitor shows up to her. This representative of God. It begins to speak to her. It's kind of like Genesis 31, where Jacob narrates a dream in which he says, the angel of God said to me a dream. And what did the angel of God say to Jacob? I am the God of Bethel. So we have this idea of this visible manifestation. Now, as I read verse 9, I thought there's several reasons Hagar could have disobeyed the angel of the Lord's instructions. She could have. I mean, after all, what did the angel of the Lord say to her? Go back to the woman who's been mistreating you. Well, that's not easy. I mean, one reason she didn't, shouldn't have gone back, well, in my mind, I wouldn't have, I don't know. Further of fear of further mistreatment. I'd like to think I'd go back, but I could think of reasons I should say why she, she wouldn't have. Fear of further mistreatment. Unresolved anger towards Abram. I imagine she felt used in that sense. She probably had no desire to submit to an unkind person. And you've been there. If you've ever have a supervisor, a boss over you who's not the nicest person, and maybe who's downright mean and unfair. You can relate here a little bit to what Hagar might be thinking. And maybe she has a doubt about God's will. What's going on here? Uh, Throughout this whole process, we're not sure what her mindset is, but I'm sure that might have been one of them. By encouraging Hagar to return to the household of Abram, Angel implied, God will watch over you. God's going to bless you. In verse 10, this angel Lord conveys a promise to her. I will greatly multiply your descendants. Kind of sounds like what was said to uh, Abram a little bit. In words, I'm going to bless you. They're going to be too numerous to count. It talks about she's going to bear a son, and here's what I want you to call this son, Ishmael. And his name means God hears. That's kind of neat. Every time she'd look at her son, she'd remember this divine, vis- this divine visitor and this encounter and would remember that God hears her. What a great reminder that is. Sadly, the angel predicted a perpetual strife for Hagar's son, Ishmael. The message Bible translation uh, says this man will be a bucking bronco of a man. <laughs> um, and I don't know what went through Hagar's mind. Maybe... It, that really didn't sink in as the angels. Maybe she thought in terms of he's going to be a stinker. He'll be a handful. You know, I don't know if she realized the implications of what his life would be like. You know, Ishmael wouldn't be in high school voted most popular. He'd probably be most voted to go to prison. <laughs> um, he'd be that kind of guy. And the angel's up front about that. But I think, I think verse 13 becomes a really rich verse then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God who sees. For she said, have I even remained alive here after seeing him? And she names this well a God who sees. Because this God who sees spoke to her and told her to name a son a God who hears. Isn't that rich? I'm a God who hears, Hagar. And I'm a God who sees. I hear what's going on in your life. I hear you. I see you. I know what's going on. And so obviously Hagar shares with Abram 
this because Abram names the child Ishmael. So obviously Hagar shared that. In Abram's 86, and we learn from Genesis 21, that when Isaac is born, the son of promise, he's 100. Abram's not done waiting. He's got another 14 years. He's not to become too impatient, so to speak. They tried to rush God. They had a fleshly solution, but they wouldn't receive their blessing for another 14 years. You see, our running ahead of God doesn't pressure God to hurry his agenda. I mean, we don't say to God, let's pick up the pace, and God's like, oh, you're right, I was sorry, I was running a little slow there. No, that's not how it works. And, and I'm convinced even when we try to rush God, God might even delay even further until we learn the lesson, not to rush him, but to wait upon him. Those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. Could we also flip that around? Those who don't wait upon the Lord will become weary, will become wearisome. I would say yes. If you want strength, if you want your strength to be renewed, slow down and wait. If you want to continue to be fatigued, overwhelmed, worry, then get ahead of God, if that's what you're up for. But I think it's better to wait. Which brings us to important lessons. One, we have here, if you're an Abraham or Sarah, in this situation in your life, you're facing in a dilemma, you're not sure what to do, and there's part of you that's starting to pick up the pace, although if deep down you're not sure if that's what God wants. There's a warning here about impatience. They wouldn't wait, and they suffered consequences of sinful impatience. Psalm 27, 14, wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. The psalmist had to repeat it. Time and time again, I've talked to engaged couples who said to me, you know what, we're so grateful we waited and remained pure sexually until our wedding night. We're so glad we waited because God blessed us. God blesses when we wait. I know it's hard. Hard for us go-getters, isn't it? We want to go get it. We want to go get it. Get her done, we're told. But there's a warning here about impatience. We have good friends, Tim and Eva Ewers, and um, they were in the process. He used to be a chef on a yacht for a prince. Ever heard of somebody of that kind of occupation? Kind of interesting stories. But anyways, he moved back towards La Crosse area, and they found this old historic, it's almost like a castle, and, and, and they wanted to restore it and open a French Mediterranean restaurant in this historic place. They were in our small group, and, and, uh, and, and Cindy, you could share some of this too with you as well, is how we prayed with them through the process of trying to purchase this and all the loopholes they went through and how they had to wait for this to come. Now they own it. It's a beautiful place. They're, they're very successful. But there's something that happens when you go there and eat. And it's something cultural over in Europe I didn't realize when we first went there. And that is this. They really want you to relax. So much so, it drove me crazy how long it took to get my food. I mean, they brought hors d'oeuvres right away. I mean, they brought little things to snack, but it, it took so long, I, was actually, I actually became impatient, uncomfortable, kind of like, pick up the pace here a little bit. Y'all came to eat. I didn't come to relax. You know, that type of thing. And, uh, but the weight forces you to relax. And it's a good kind of waiting. It's a warning against impatience because when you're impatient like me the first time you went there, 
I missed out on the moments. I didn't enjoy the meal like I could have. And when you and I are impatient, we miss out on the blessing God has for us. There's a warning here of impatience. And parents, listen well. You and I are so desirous to guide our children. We want them to see their strengths. But we can't force our idea of a future on them. We need to be patient and let our, let our God lead our children. After all, they were his before they were ours. And I know that's hard. We like to control a little bit because we, we, we know it's best, right? <laughs> um, and so as a parent, I remind you as I remind myself, we can trust him and let him lead our children. Yes, we point out their strengths. We help them to envision a future. That's important, to live with vision. We do all that, but we do all that trusting that God will lead them. And we wait upon the Lord for him to do that very thing, and we teach them to wait. Don't become too impatient. There's also a promise here about God's sovereignty. Think about this. The name Ishmael means God hears. The name of the well, el Roi, means God who sees. It speaks to God's sovereignty in this whole process. Even though Isaac was the son of promise, he also did love Ishmael. And God's eyes were watching Hagar in the wilderness. And you and I cannot escape his presence. We cannot bypass his rule. For as soon as you and I get to our destination, we find out he's already been there. And so we submit to God's sovereignty. God's sovereign hand does not need your help. God is able to move when he's ready. He acts at the best time, and he acts and does what is best. So he is glorified, first and foremost. And then he longs to bless us. You and I can rest in his sovereignty. He's wiser than you. He's stronger than you and I. Even if his leading doesn't make sense, this is the hardest time, isn't it? We can rest in his sovereignty. You see, there's a promise here that God is a sovereign God. He's in complete control. And for the Hagers in the room, there's something important for you. There's a reminder about the forgotten. In the focus on Abraham and Sarah, it's easy to forget about Hagar, Hagar in this story. They sure didn't look out for her. Sarah didn't want her around. Abram couldn't afford to keep her around. So off to a desert she goes alone. And I'm reminded as I go through the story, God loves the underdog. His heart goes out to the broken, the abused, the widowed, the divorcee, the unpopular child in school. He hears you, and he sees you, and he loves you. And like Hagar, he wants you to be assured that he cares so you can walk around with your head held high and know that you're a child of the living God and that he cares for you. There's a reminder about the forgotten in this story. He will not cast you aside. He has a call on your life. It's a promise. He has not forgotten you. Child of God, God longs to lead you. He has a call on your life. He has spiritual treasures that await you. So don't get ahead of him or you'll miss it. Rest in him, rest in his plan, and rest in his timing. Let's pray. Our Father, I recognize that my brothers and sisters are different places in their life. We're at different ages in this room. Some are in school, some in college. Some have just entered the workforce. Some just 
got married. Some are expecting a child, and some are in retirement, and some are facing retirement. We're all in different places in our journey with you. And Lord, I'm first so grateful that you've given us your word. Lord, you have given us this account in Genesis 16. And you did it because you're God of grace. You wanted us to look and see the warnings, the reminders, the promises, the truths that we could apply to our journey. To not leave them here and say that's just Abraham's experience. But Lord, it would be our experience as we look at our life and we could learn from his journey and Sarah's journey and Hagar's journey. And help us to do that, God. Help us to learn to wait. To be still and know that you are God. Especially, Lord, when everything in us wants to get going. Especially, Lord, for those who are wired like me as a go-getter. Let's roll up our sleeves and get it done, and, and maybe God will catch up, we think. God, protect us from that. Protect us from the cultural and society's pressures to move along at warp speed. Help us to take our cues from you and your Holy Spirit. Lord, help us to experience the promise, and I pray this for my brothers and sisters right now, that as they wait upon you, you'll renew their strength. That they'll mount up with wings like eagles. That they'll run and not grow faint and walk and not grow weary. Might we each experience that as we refuse to get ahead of you. We wait upon you and rest in your sovereignty and we trust you. Might this be the experience for each of us. It's in your strong name, Jesus, I pray. Amen.